electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. We're going to start off with some breaking news. There is a Fed interest rate decision in just about one hour. Surprising, I know. The big money question, will Jay Powell and company stay aggressive? Will they back off? Whatever they decide could swing stocks big in either direction. We're going to set you up for all of it. We're going to count you down to all of it. Plus, the CEO of logistics giant C.H. Robinson is here what he is seeing on inflation and shipping. We've got a lot to do in the next 59 or so minutes. Let's begin with the markets ahead of the big meeting. Dom Chu has got the numbers. Dom, it's like the kickoff to the Super Bowl. Are you getting pumped? (laughs) 59 minutes and 15 seconds worth of pumped left in me. But we're watching the markets, as you point out, Brian. And this is very much a wait-and-see environment, although a little bit more tilted towards the negative side than you would expect to see given a Fed rate decision. So to put things in perspective right now, the Dow Industrials are down about one quarter of 1%, 68 points, 32,584. The S&P is at 3833.92, down 22 points, about one half of 1% declines. And the Nasdaq Composite, 10,780, down 110 points. The real lagger on the session, down about 1% full. Now, the S&P 500 is staying in this kind of static marginal loss mode right now. But we have seen a little bit more of that's tilt to the downside. We've been pretty much negative all session long. But again, not dramatically so, but very much wait and see. One other place we're watching very closely is the mega cap technology and tech adjacent type names. They're the ones you know, right? Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Tesla. They're all down about one to two and a half percent right now. The reason why I want to call your attention to the top three is because they are now the only members left in the trillion dollar club. Yes, because of Amazon's market declines that we've seen post earnings, Amazon shares are now worth roughly, call it $970 billion. So only these three stocks are in that trillion dollar club. Amazon falling below that trillion dollar mark. Tesla shares down two and a half percent right now. We'll keep an eye on big tech just as a sentiment gauge given interest rates. And then one stock of the day to keep a close eye on, bucking the trend, the best Point contributor to the Dow Jones Industrial Average today, Boeing shares up 3%, $4.5 to the upside, $147.96. This is after the company's chief financial officer told investors that Boeing could see free cash flow gains, positive free cash flow, from anywhere to 3 to $5 billion next year. And that's huge because what they could do is see a ramp up in 737 max and 787 deliveries there. That could be driving some of those results. That positivity is driving Boeing shares higher by roughly 3.5%. And again, Brian, a real kind of bucking the downtrend overall with Boeing shares. We'll see if that sticks around after the Fed minutes, or rather the Fed announcement comes out yeah. at 2 p.m. this afternoon. You know all that tech stuff? I was texting with D. Bose the other day. I wonder how many tech employees of Facebook and others, Dom, may have tied their mortgages to borrowing against their stock. Let's hope not many or none at all. You know what I'm talking about. It, it, is, it, it is one of those situations where as we, as we see asset values decline, yes, there could be a huge ripple effect in other parts of yep. the market. Let's hope a lot of people aren't tied home-wise, leverage-wise. That's to their, right. Their Lo- loan your equity out to get a cheaper mortgage, but now the bank 
Stocks go down. Could be a big story. Dom, thank you very much. All right, that is stocks. Now let's hit bonds, because those moves may actually be ahead of the Fed, right? I mean, credit folks, they can't wait around. They've got to make their moves before the actual news. So what are we looking like right now? Rick Santelli's at the CME. I know you're pumped for Powell and company. I am so pumped for Powell and company. As I look at what's going on with interest rates, twos are virtually unchanged. Tens are virtually unchanged. All other maturities are basically within a basis point of settlement, which is actually quite typical. But the lead-in is very interesting. Remember, the 20th and the 21st were the last Fed meeting. So let's look at how all maturities of relevance were affected by the last three-quarters of a point increase on the 21st. Here's two years. They're currently up about 57 basis points. There were several basis points below 4%. On the 20th, the day before the three-quarter point increase. Tens, well, they were at 353, so they're about 51 basis points higher in yield. Here's what's really interesting. Three months of tens, the recession spread. Sully was definitely paying attention to the last Fed meeting. They were a positive 27. Now they're minus 10, a 37 basis point reversal. And now five sessions in a row that we've closed inverted. The dollar index, well, it's about a penny higher than it was at the last Fed meeting. Now here's where it gets interesting. You said, what is the market preparing for? Is it pricing in? Well, January Fed funds of 23, I isolated it. Okay, so right now it's roughly around 90. 9557. Uh, uh, it was around 9575 at the last Fed meeting. So it built in a little less than 20 basis points. Well, ultimately, though, if you go back to the 26th of July to the previous meeting, it built in about 87 basis points. Now, I know we're going to get a big move after the hike at 2 o'clock Eastern, but it'll be very relevant to see how much more Fed fund futures built in to see if we're actually getting closer to the end of this cycle. Sully, back to you. Rick, laid it out perfectly, buddy. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, let's keep this conversation going. Joining us now is David Balin. He is Chief Investment Officer at City Global Wealth, along with Subhadra Rajapa, Societe Generale's head of U.S. Rates Strategy. Subhadra, start with you. I'm actually confused. If the Fed goes 75 basis points today and indicates, they won't say 50, but if they indicate a half a percentage point in December, would that be considered dovish? Is, is, is only... 50 basis points, the new dovish? Probably not. I mean, I think the Fed is going to sound hawkish at this meeting. Even if they ratchet down to 50 basis points from 75, they're still hiking. So to me, that is not a pivot in any form or any way, shape or form. What they might do at the December meeting, and I think the focus is very much on what they do at the December meeting, they might uh, hike rates by 50 basis points, but then uh, move their median dot up for 2023, suggesting a much higher terminal Fed funds rate. The market's now pricing in the terminal Fed funds rate around 5%. Really, the question for me is come mid next year, if the employment picture remains as robust as it is right now and the consumers remain resilient, what will they do then? So I think the dots in December, they have to make a decision or they have to have a good idea of what the policy outcomes are going to be for 2023. And that's really where the biggest uncertainty is in. And that's when they can sound a lot more hawkish than what the market expects. I just wonder, you know, here's the thing, David. I mean, not listen, Jay Powell, they're all smart people, very successful. They were so wrong. Their dot plots one year ago we're like 3% away from where they are now. I, I just don't understand. I know we're going we're gonna to do what they tell us they're going to do, but no matter what they tell us, David, 
it's, it's clear from history just one year ago, it could wildly change. Well, I think you're making the point that what Powell said in 2020 was that we're going to ease and stay, you know, we're going to stay easy for as long and it won't have a very difficult residual impact, right? And it turned out in 21 that it did. Now we're looking at the exact opposite where he's saying, look, there's really no rate that's not, you know, we can go higher, we can stay higher for longer and that that's going to work out just fine and that the economy can deal with that amount of interest rate increase. And I think that that's where the fallacy is. If, if Powell's to be faulted for anything, it's in my mind to be extreme on both both ends. So when we think about next year, what we're seeing in residential housing is indicative of what's going to happen. Right now, you know, housing demand is now 50% of what it was just six months ago. We could see three to 400,000 job losses in residential construction. We could see 2 million job losses next year across the economy. At that point, will we actually see lower inflation? But the fact is that the Fed is going to cause us to have a material reduction in yeah. economic activity in America. And that is going to be priced into the market, along with the fact that earnings... Has it, though, David, has it already been priced into the market? When interest rates go up, you have to discount valuations because things like free cash flow assumptions, they come down. Multiples must come down. Have they come down enough? So I think you're exactly right. Interest rates have caused multiples to come down on today's earnings level. What has not been priced into the market is that we could have, you know, average corporate earnings, S&P earnings down 10 percent next year. And the combination of higher rates and, and lower earnings has not been fully priced into the market yet. Remember this. There has never been the low point in the market reached before a recession actually occurs. And the inversion of the curve is what we're seeing right now, indicating that the probability of that recession is far higher today than it was just a few months ago. And I guess, Subhadra, I mean, that is the question. I know you're not the equity person, but has the market discounted what is likely to be a recession? I'll ask it this way. Has the market sufficiently discounted where you see interest rates one year from today? I think that repricing is still happening, right? I mean, last year, like you you just pointed out, last year this time, we were not prepared for how much the Fed would hike. And I would argue... Uh, that this year we're not prepared for how much the Fed could hike next year if you don't see a meaningful uh, change in the employment uh, picture um, to the to the downside, that is. And also, broadly speaking, I think that the transmission mechanism of higher rates is a lot slower in some respects. The mortgage market is in a very good place. Household balance sheets are very, very strong. So it's, 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 beca- it's becoming much more of a struggle for the Fed to just rely on rate hikes as the primary uh, you know, policy transmission mechanism to slow down the economy. So if you look at the, the yield curve, it's definitely pricing in a recession. The three-month tenure part of the curve is inverted. Um, that's, a, that's a metric that the Fed uh, tracks. But, but other metrics like maybe credit spreads and even equities are probably not fully appreciating the potential downside uh, to the market. So that's really where I think the concerns are, broadly speaking. A la 2013 so-called taper tantrum where Bernanke freaked everybody out came out of nowhere, spooked the bond market. Uh, I will give Powell credit on this, Subhadra, and tell me if you agree. Has he sufficiently, or everybody else, because every single day on CNBC, we have a headline from a Fed speaker. Kashkari says this at conference in Vegas, or whatever it may be. Have they sufficiently telegraphed what they're going to do? I think that they've telegraphed that they're going to be data dependent. So broadly speaking, I think... That's what you're going to see from from Powell today is that 
they're going to be very transparent in saying that they're doing everything they can right now with the, with the information that they have and that they'll have to adjust as they go along. That's kind of how I see policy playing out for the remainder of, of, of this year and perhaps even well into next year. Why? Because they just don't really have transparency on the outcomes on, on inflation because it's a global phenomenon. You have double digit inflation in, in Europe and other countries. So it's it's just it's it's that. And then also the concerns about financial stability, broadly speaking. I think volatility has been very high. Liquidity has been very poor. So it's going to be very, very challenging for the Fed to navigate all of these different factors. Yeah, we've got to leave it there. We'll let you guys get ready. But, David, to my point, one year ago, the high dot, the high projection was for Fed funds at 0.75 percent. That was exactly. one year ago. That's like betting the Bengals are going to win 50 to 3, but they lose 100 to nothing. David and Subhadra, really appreciate it. Thank Patriots you. Patriots are in the best place this year. You got it. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Get ready for the Fed. All right, coming up, it's not just about the Fed. We got stocks, semiconductors, and streaming. We're going to tell you how to position for Robinhood, Qualcomm, and Roku ahead of their results. But first, that Fed decision, yeah, it's front and center for you, and it should be. They're going to be keying into every single word in the statement. So your next guest is looking at the little details of Chair Powell's language and what that may say about the Fed's next move. 47 or so minutes until that decision. And we're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, when Alan Greenspan ran the Fed, some investors used to do what they referred to as the briefcase indicator. I think it was actually started on this network. Depending on the thickness of his bag, his briefcase, the market tried to decipher what would be coming next. In other words, like how many papers did he have in the briefcase, you know, furiously shuffling through? Now, these days, we don't interpret words like we used to. We don't just read them. We dissect them online. We have to change like ongoing to further rising to stabilizing, future to current. And those changes in language could alter the direction of the markets. In fact, I think former Goldman Sachs Lloyd Blankfein, by the way, who is wickedly funny on the side, joked online, quote, I imagine Jay Powell and the rest of the Fed governors are right now sitting with a thesaurus, thesaurus, he said, trying to find a word that means pause or not pause, depending on who's listening. It's funny because it's probably too close to reality. Joining us now is Aneta Markowska. He's Chief Financial Economist at Jeffries. Aneta, do you have your thesaurus? Easy for me to say. Thesaurus ready because any change in any of those languages, and I just posted your last statement on my Twitter account, is going to move markets, I think. What are you expecting? 
Well, I would say in the statement, there is really only one word that matters, and that is ongoing, as you mentioned a little while ago. If the Fed wanted to signal some kind of a shift, a, a softening in the tone, they would change that ongoing to something like more rate hikes will be appropriate or further rate hikes will be appropriate. That would just sound a little more finite and less open-ended. I, it's not my base case that they change that today. I think it's a little bit too early, um, but that's certainly something we'll be keeping an eye on. And, and if they do change that, I think the market would perceive that as a pretty significant shift. And I'm trying to figure out what the hawkish language might be. Is it things like remain elevated when it comes to inflation? Job market remains strong because bizarrely and a little bit sort of oddly, the Fed actually seems to they, they need the job market to cool off. That's right. I think he will. Um, well, actually, I think the, the, the sort of the main um, language that I'll be interested in during the press conference is how Powell characterizes the balance of risks. Because up until now, Fed officials have been generally saying that at some point in the future, risks will become more two-sided, meaning they're not two-sided yet. They're still asymmetrically skewed to the upside. You know, so if Powell says something like risks are becoming more two-sided or are more two-sided, again, that would be a very dovish tilt, not my base case. Uh, but but that would be one way to communicate yeah. a shift. It's not my base case because I, there, there's just no evidence that the Fed can point to that would give them, you know, any confidence that inflation is on the right path, that the labor market is on the right path. I think he'll talk about that Joel's data. We're back to 1.9 job openings per unemployed. That's, you know, that's basically just below the cycle highs. There is really no meaningful decline in that trend. Um, and something that Powell really talked about um, pretty adamantly at the last press conference was this idea that the core inflation, when you look at it on three, six, and 12-month averages, it's five-tenths per month, and that still yeah. hasn't changed. So, you know, inflation's still very sticky, and there is nothing that they can point to in the labor market that that sort of gives them no. any confidence that those pressures are going to abate. Yeah. In the last statement, quote, job gains have been robust in recent months. Unemployment rate remain low. Look for a change of the word robust, if that moderates again. And then here's the line that sort of sticks out to me and others. The committee is strongly committed to returning inflation to its 2% objective. I mean, if we have a change in language where it's like we would like to see inflation, and that's the kind of stuff we're talking about, right? That would indicate a, a slightly dovish pivot. And that is not going to change. No. You know, one of the questions that I get from investors very often is, you know, why wouldn't just the Fed accept slightly higher inflation if that avoids a lot of pain? Avoiding pain is not really an option, right? The only question is, do you want to take some pain now or more pain later? That is the trade-off, realistically speaking. Um, and, and so I, I and you know, and and hinting in any way that the Fed will be, you know, willing to live with higher inflation, I think potentially unhinges the long end of the Treasury curve. So that doesn't necessarily do us any good either. So I think that that, that phrase sticks and, and Powell will be very, very adamant about, you know, his, his, his um, desire yeah. to return to that 2% objective. Well, the language is up on the Twitter accounts. Anita, we'll let you get ready, get that dictionary, thesaurus, lexicon, whatever it might be. Get it ready. Look forward to your analysis. Anita Markowska with uh, Jeffries. Have you on soon. Thank you. All right. On deck is what's on the dock. How logistics giant C.H. Robinson sees the world and inflation. 
right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. There's your money. 38 minutes or so before the Federal Reserve. NASDAQ actually losing a little steam down about 1%. A little bit surprising. Normally don't see moves of really any size ahead of the Fed. It's not huge, but it's still maybe a little bigger than you might expect. Is it a take on the Fed or something else? We'll have to find out. Dow down 68 points right now. Some of your big money movers include Paramount. It is the worst stock in the S&P 500. It tanked after missing estimates on the top and bottom line. Cord cutting, a drop in ad revenue weighing on results. That stock hitting its lowest level since May of 2020. And you can't put lipstick on this. Shares of Estee Lauder trading at July 2020 lows. After cosmetics company gave weaker than expected guidance, it is blaming higher costs, a stronger dollar, and COVID lockdowns in China. They're big in China. Lockdowns really hurting. And Airbnb, we talked about it yesterday, plunging despite beating better than expected results. We don't beat better than expected results. They had better than expected results. Company's guidance coming in below some estimates. That's the problem. And Airbnb says cancellation rates for the third quarter were higher than 2019 levels. Maybe a lot of people getting excited about a trip, then changing their mind based on whatever, costs, et cetera. Who knows? Airbnb stock down. Now, let's get a news update with Tyler Mavis. Brian, thank you very much, and uh, welcome, everybody. There is a peace agreement in Ethiopia to stop hostilities in a brutal civil war in the Tigray region. Victims in the two-year conflict could number in the hundreds of thousands. The agreement calls for a coordinated disarmament and a restoration of law and order. In Brazil, supporters of the outgoing President Jair Bolsonaro continue to protest his election loss in Sao Paulo. Riot police used a water cannon to clear demonstrators blocking a street. Bolsonaro has not conceded defeat, but he has also stopped short of contesting the election and says he's going to cooperate in a transfer of power. Meantime, in Japan, nearly 100 hot air balloons are taking flight for an annual festival. For the first time in three years, spectators allowed to attend and get an up-close view of all those beautiful balloons. On the news tonight with Shep Smith, an unexpectedly close race for governor in Oklahoma and how an unprecedented endorsement from a major tribal leader in the state could affect the outcome. That's tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern Time. Brian, back to you, sir. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much. All right, still ahead, Roku, Qualcomm, Robinhood, all on deck with their numbers, the key things to watch, and how to position ahead of their earnings. We call it earnings exchange. And yeah, we're even doing it on this Fed Day. You're welcome, America. We're back right after this. We call it earnings exchange. We're doing it even on a Fed day today. We're going to take a look at the story and the trade and what the setup is on three key names that are reporting after the bell. Today, those names are Qualcomm, Robinhood, and Roku. All right, first up, that is Qualcomm. Shares are down 36% this year, on pace for their worst year since 2001. This despite the fact that Qualcomm has beaten the street on earnings for four straight years. Christina Partsinevelis has the story. And Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments, has our trades. Christina, 
Good to see. It's like semiconductor week. We had infrastructure I, week. This is semiconductor week. I know. I don't know what that weird little Montreal thing you just did was there with the dance. But it was way, an excitement dance because I get to talk about semiconductors, make it exciting for you, our audience. Guess what? You also get to relevant. talk. You also get to talk about them, not just to boot them. All right, Qualcomm. Oh. What's the, what's the setup? Okay, let's talk about Qualcomm. You just mentioned the stock was down, what, over 35, 36, 37% right now. A lot of that has to do with the fact that it is highly exposed to the consumer end market. Two major factors for this report is that you are seeing a slowdown in the 5G adoption. The second major factor, too, is China's shipments have declined. These are smartphone shipments down 19% year over year for the September quarter. So that's not good for the company given its exposure. We talk about some positives for the company. The fact that Qualcomm going into 2023 has Samsung as one of its more high-end customers. It announced that it will be making every or making the chips for its uh, handsets to its tablets. So we may start to see that reflected in the March quarter. And then Apple, still a big question mark around that. Are they going to still be customers? Is Apple going to continue into 2024 with uh, Qualcomm chips? If so, that could be a positive. And then the third positive trigger for this company is the automotive segment, which are now right now accounts for about 3.7% of Q3 fiscal revenue. The company Company's narrative is that this is going to be a major driver that they see this market as a hundred billion dollar uh, total total addressable market TAM by yeah. 2030. So definitely some strength there. But what? That's long term. But uh, hold on, so, don't you can't just scoop over number point two before we get to Nancy. You said if they break up with Apple, that's yes. not a, that's like Tom and Giselle. I mean that's a that would be a massive split. Well, no, they, they're already supposed we to know. be doing it. Well, no, no, they, they are supposed to be doing it, but the rumor is that it's going to be delayed because Apple can't create its own chips with a phone. That's why. And I've asked Qualcomm this, and I, I will be sure to ask it again when I get on the call with them, uh, uh, you know, when the earnings hit. But, um, yeah, this is something that could still... We're, we're, we're still are going to you find breaking out. up with Apple? I mean, that's kind of a big deal. It's kind okay, of... I'll make sure to ask it exactly like that. But do it, go, do it in January in San Diego at their headquarters. It's very lovely that time of year. Nancy Tangler, are, are, are you a buyer of Qualcomm here? No. Uh, so we own it. One of our equity strategies that has a much longer time horizon focused on dividend and dividend growth. Uh, but I actually think Christina nailed the two most important things. One is China. They get 67% of their revenues from China. And the other is the smartphone issue. Uh, and, and they are investing, as she pointed out, in other areas. But it's going to take a very long time to turn this Queen Mary around. And that's usually not the time you want to be actively buying these stocks. Um, if you already own it, I think you're fine. You hold on, you get paid to wait. But if you don't own it, I think there's better places to be if you want to have chip exposure. One of those is Broadcom, higher dividend yield at 3.6, growing it much faster. It's like they're growing it at 32% annualized, five-year annualized growth rate, the dividend that is, and half the business is software. So yeah. in this environment where, where we know the problems with chips, I think you want to be um, very specifically selective about which companies you own in that space. Well, so listen, I get the reference. I hope it's not the Queen Mary, which has been sitting rotting in port for 30 years in Long Beach, wherever it is. Nancy, thank Christina, thank you very much. All right, next up is Robinhood. It is riding a four-month stock winning streak, but like so many others, still down 34% of the year. It's still not profitable. The street expecting another loss for the third quarter. Kate Rooney has the story, like, permanent losses forever, Kate. Like any sign of profitability? We'll see. That that really is one of the big focuses. When is this company going to be profitable? And the markets are down this year. We all know this if you've been watching CNBC. 
people are trading a lot less and Robinhood tends to make money when people trade more. So the expectation is pretty low for trading volume, which is still really where they make a bulk of their money. Not much you can do about that, but for Robinhood, it's more about what the company can control. What levers do they actually have? And the big one is cost cutting. So they've already done layoffs. Wall Street's looking for some more cost discipline, especially in guidance. So any commentary around that. Also watch net interest income. So Robinhood makes money on customer deposits and rising rates tend to help with that. The big question is, will that help offset some of the trading slowdown? You also want to watch account growth. Are people leaving the platform? And then part of that is average revenue per user. Are they still able to monetize the users that are right now still on the platform? Silly. That, I guess that is the question. Nancy, I'm going to say this, sort of summarize Robin, what Kate said in Robinhood's business strategy is they're going to lose money on every trade, but don't worry, they're going to make it up in volume. Yeah, and, and I think this is not the time to own companies that don't have earnings and don't have earnings in sight. Uh, this, this is a trader stock, to be sure. I'm not saying you can't make money on the trade. Uh, the head, one of the headlines, top headlines that came up this morning about the stock was that um, it had its longest uh, winning streak in its history. It was eight days the stock's gone up 20%. But as you pointed out, and as Christina said, it's down 33% year-to-date and down 83% from its all-time high. Uh, in a rising interest rate environment, in a slowing economic environment where people actually are back to work, I don't think this is the stock you want to own. We call them terminally cheap in our in our company. Yeah. Um, we'd rather own something like Schwab, where you're actually getting paid. There's earnings. You got a an experienced management team, uh, and and you're getting paid a dividend to wait uh, during the period that it's going to take to to bail these stocks yeah, out. Yeah. Final comment, Kate. I mean, this has been a brutal year, not just for Robinhood. Any company that doesn't make money has gotten their teeth kicked in. Yeah, that's a good point. It's shifted dramatically from a year ago, and really this started to turn around when the Fed started raising rates. The path to profitability is really the buzzword for a lot of these money-losing companies, but it's interesting on earnings calls, the companies that are getting rewarded are the ones that are doing layoffs, that are scrapping some of the more ambitious plans and getting more focused. You can see that in PayPal, and that stock has outperformed recently because it's got this activist investor, Elliot, coming in. So for Robinhood, it's really about can they take this seriously? Can they pull back in a time where their core business isn't really making money. And again, what is the path to profitability? It's like that bridge behind you to Treasure Island. I think that's what that is, <laughs> This Kate. is the path But it never, it, the bridge <laughs> just keeps going. It's on this side, right? That's it. There you go. Oh, no, this side. My dad, was, my dad was stationed the there in the Navy. My dad was on that island in the Navy years and years, long time ago. Kate Rooney, no thank you very much. All right, now go. it's like million-dollar condos or something. All right, the final name is Roku. This stock down 75% this year, more than 80% off its highs, also not profitable. Smart TV growth. Julia Borston joining us. I mean, Julia, I'm old enough to remember when Roku was like the hot kid on the block. I mean, and that was like last year. Everyone's like, this <laughs> yeah. is the future of streaming. What, what's happened? Roku's stock is in many ways seen as representing the health of the streaming market. This is a company that benefits when there are more streaming services launching because those streaming services advertise on the Roku platform. Now, of course, it also has its own ad-supported channel. So there are a couple of key things to look at here for Roku. The first one is revenue growth. Roku is expected to report 2% revenue growth in the third quarter and guide to 3.5% revenue growth in Q4. So I think that guidance is going to be in focus, representative of what kind of 
of ad trends we're seeing amid all this macroeconomic uncertainty. The other one is active accounts. That's a key number to watch for Roku to see how engaged users are and what it says about the health of the streaming market as a whole. And so then the other thing we're watching here, um, I'm sorry, just for active accounts, the number I'm looking for there is 64 million. That's the number to watch. And then path to profitability. We're just talking about it with Kate Rooney there. But this is a company that is expected to go to a from a, a profit in the year ago quarter to an adjusted loss of $1.28 per share in the quarter. And the company is expected to continue to report losses um, going forward. So I think anything about path to profitability, ability to increase average revenue per user, those things are all going to be in focus. But the health of the consumer yeah. and the health of the ad market, those are the big risks well, they for got, a company like Roku. Nancy, it sounds like Roku got so close. They were talking about the path to profitability. Then I guess the big bad wolf happened to be on that path. I'm going to make a wild stab based on your comments on Robinhood that you are not a buyer or owner of Roku as well. We used to own it, Brian, and uh, we owned it during the stay-at-home sort of, you know, bubble. We didn't get out at the top, but we did okay. I think for us, what we realized is that there's a heavy dependence on hardware sales, and um, that that is is going to be important to watch as well. But I, this stock is not going to be trading on earnings. It's going to be trading on the fact that it doesn't have earnings and free cash flow is going negative next year. I, I can't make up a reason why you would want to own this stock over the next year or two. Uh, Kathy Wood has much longer and better vision. She's in buying it, uh, but she also has a, a almost unlimited time horizon. Uh, we don't invest that way for our clients. We invest for the next three to five to seven years. I need earnings to to have some metric to go by. I got to correct you. Unless you're the vampire Lestat, nobody has an unlimited time horizon, Nancy. I, <laughs> <laughs> I wish we did. Nancy, th- I I even made Ju- if I could make Julia Borston chuckle, that's a win. That's a win, Nancy. Great. You always make me chuckle. Always make me chuckle, What, what, did, what did Eunice Yoon say one day? Every time I see her face, I laugh. And... <laughs> And now it's become like an internal (laughs) insult. Nancy and Julia, thank you both very much. Kate, Christina, you're out there somewhere. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, what do the Cheesecake Factory and Caesars, not the salad, but the casino, have in common? Here's a hint. It's electric. Dun, 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 dun. We're back after this. All right, welcome back. Could the Las Vegas Strip soon turn off the lights at least part of the time to save money well might have helped seizures bottom line last quarter if it did but it is not the only company getting hit with high utility costs pippa stevens joining us now with the restaurants that are feeling the pinch from a rather unexpected and perhaps unwelcome visitor pippa that's right brian rising energy costs are eating into restaurant companies results it's the latest headwind for the industry, which has also grappled with higher commodity and labor costs. Let's run through some recent comments. McDonald's saying that margin pressures remained significantly under pressure due to commodity and wage inflation, as well as elevated energy costs. The company said this is especially true in Europe and that they expect the pressures to continue. Olive Garden parent Darden noting expenses rose year over year, and part of that was due to utilities inflation, which ran at 16%. Now, Cheesecake Factory missed earnings estimates last night, saying profit margins in the quarter reflected higher than anticipating operating expenses, particularly in utilities and building maintenance. And Bloomin Brands said inflation ran at 13%, 
driven by utilities, and they expect those pressures to continue this quarter. Chipotle, Texas Roadhouse, and Yum! Brands are among the others also pointing to rising energy costs. Now, overall, utility costs are typically about two, between 2 and 4% of restaurant sales. According to Bernstein, they do fall under the occupancy and other costs category, so it's not an enormous number. But with power prices jumping, the firm said it could double the cost base for what, Brian, is usually a fixed cost. Yeah, it's a big story. Wish we had time to dig in, but I'm getting a hook from the producers. Pippa, we'll talk about it more. You know I hate talking about energy. Thank you. All right, coming up. Logistics runs the world. It may also be the best or maybe only real crystal ball we have to where the economy is going. And C.H. Robbins, CEO, is up next on Just That. Stick around. All right, quick market check because the Dow Jones Industrial Average is soaring. And by soaring, I mean it's up 20 points. But at least it's in the green. It was down earlier today. The Nasdaq is still down. I don't know if I need to tell you this, folks. There's a very important Federal Reserve rate decision in about 13 and a half minutes. Shares of C.H. Robinson falling after missing on both the top and bottom lines. But that is not the most interesting or concerning part, maybe, CEO Bob Biesterfeld saying on the conference call that demand slowdown they expected in the second half is playing out with weakness in both retail and the housing market. He joins us now, Bob. Good to have you on. Um, COVID lockdowns, China, I don't know. We, don't, we can't figure out what they're doing to their economy or their people. That's for them to decide. But the rates that you're getting, I mean, have crashed, right? One, one to two K in what used to be 20,000. Yeah, there's no question, Brian. First off, great to be here. But we've seen significant changes, specifically in the global forwarding part of our business in terms of the economics of moving goods on a global basis, whether it be in the Trans-Pacific you know, to the West Coast. That's clearly the area where we've seen the biggest downturn in terms of pricing. I guess the good news for consumers and for businesses is that there's more available capacity now on the water. And when we talk about inflation, you know, we're, we're, we're removing some of those costs that are, that are driving inflation. Yeah, I mean, is this a short-term thing with China because of all these lockdowns? Or when you plan, uh, how, how do you plan? Because it's like your business is almost subject to the whim of the Chinese president. Well, you know, Brian, part of the strength of C.H. Robinson is that we're a non-asset-based, asset-light business that has a leading, a leading presence not only in the trans-Pacific trade lane, but also domestically here in both truckload and less than truckload, and we continue to diversify our forwarding business into other parts of the global forwarding landscape. You know, specifically in this quarter alone, in our new business that we brought on, 60% of it existed outside of Trans-Pacific. Domestically in the United States, what are we seeing? I know there was a huge inventory build, Bob, where everybody, you know, you couldn't get anything, then you bought everything. So I don't know if the slowdown is some sort of economic slowdown or just because everybody overstocked an inventory. What do you see? It's the right question to ask. And there's no question in looking back that we absolutely saw a pull forward in inventory in the first half of the year, which has provided us with an extremely muted peak season. And, and that, in turn, has really driven down pricing across the board, whether it be surface transportation here domestically. You know, we've seen spot market rates come down north of 30%. We've seen the, the pricing come down on the water, as you described, and we're also seeing pricing declines in, in air freight as well. So there's no question that that inventory buildup, you know, occurred earlier in the year. And I think it's yet to be seen as we 
progress through the balance of this year and into Chinese New Year to see if there's any material changes in the overall transportation landscape. Yeah, what, what about the operating cost landscape? I, I may or may not have some people I know that work at your company. They heard something about operating cost reductions this morning. If you're an employee, it's got to make you a little bit, you know, your ears perk up. Yeah, no question. You know, on our, on our call this morning, we talked about the fact that you know, given the, the slowing freight markets and the change in demand that we're seeing in our model, we do need to take some proactive costs, some proactive cost reduction actions, which we'll, you know, employ over the course of the next four quarters. But we're looking at, at the need to reduce our overall operating expenses by about $150 million over that time. You know, again, the good news about our business is we are asset light, and so we're not encumbered with, with hard assets that we have, to, we have to focus on in a time like this, and we can continue to dri- drive strong shareholder returns throughout throughout the cycle. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming that ships, shipping, all that stuff is taken care of, but how closely are you watching this potential rail strike, Bob? Yeah, we're watching it closely. I mean, intermodal or rail makes up less than 1% of our total revenues, and so we're probably yeah, looking more closely. Yeah, but it gets the stuff to the ports and the airports. Yeah, exactly, and that's, and that's what we're looking at is kind of the, the secondary impact of, of the rail strike. I mean, even though we've got clear... We've done a nice job of clearing the ports in, in the West Coast. We still have delays in terms of getting containerized goods out of the ports to yep. where they're, where they're me- needing to go based on some of the rail labor issues. And we're still about 30% below where we were pre-pandemic in terms of rail yep. labor. Yep. And that's got to get solved for. Bob Biesterfeld of uh, C.H. Robinson. Good stuff. Appreciate the candor, Bob. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.